thanksgiving expressed in, in our gospel. Help us to be like the one who returned and said thanks for all your grace and goodness. Thank you for your word. And give us ears now to hear what you want to say to us. In Christ's name, amen. And be seated. I apologize for the, uh, for the title, Guarding Against Spiritual Gangrene, and the uh, imagery that that might conjure up. But don't blame me. Um, this is from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In uh, verse 16 and 17, he's talking about false teaching that's spreading in, in the church. And this is his letter to Timothy his young disciple, and um, he is uh, encouraging Timothy to confront this, this, uh, this false teaching with gentleness, but he compares it to gangrene. He says in verse 17, their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, just a little refresher on gangrene. Um, it's a condition in which the cells of the body rapidly deteriorate because they're not getting enough blood. And if you look it up online, you'll see images <laughs> that are not pleasant to look at of toes that are like the color of charcoal, blackened uh, fingers and things like that. Well, it is an apt metaphor uh, of what false teaching can do in the life of the body of Christ. And just as gangrene can cut off the, the life-giving blood to the cells, false teaching can cut off the life-giving grace and truth of Jesus Christ if it's allowed to spread in our life or in the life of a, a congregation. And if you've been in the church for a while, you probably have seen this happen, where false teaching begins to make inroads into the community and some people's faith is, is, if not shipwrecked altogether, thrown into, into disarray and, and chaos. So it's very important that as a church and as individuals, we guard against false teaching. And that raises the question, how do we know what's true? What are the sources of authority that we have as Christians? And, and Paul talks about that in 2 Timothy chapter 2. The sources of authority. For knowing the truth and guarding against dangerous, false teaching. And I want to talk to you about that. The sources of authority and then um, just a little bit at the end on the attitude that we ought to have as we seek to be faithful to the truth of Jesus Christ and guard against false teaching. What sort of attitude should we cultivate as we seek to be faithful? But the main thing I want to talk about this morning is the the authority that we have and the sources of that authority. And so at the beginning of our passage, Paul exhorts Timothy to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. The first thing that we should ask ourselves when wrestling with the truth of a teaching trying to determine whether it's true or false, is to ask ourselves, how does this measure up against Jesus? His words, his work, 
How does this measure up against Jesus Christ? We are, after all, Christians, which means followers of Christ. This is very basic, I know, but we need to be reminded of this. Therefore, when it comes to spiritual teaching, we follow Jesus. Otherwise, we're departing from what it really means to be a Christian. And so we have to measure everything up against Jesus Christ, his words and his work. Now, Paul adds these qualifying statements about Jesus in verse 8. Risen from the dead. I mean, this is why Jesus is the ultimate authority in all things religious. Because he's the risen one. And his resurrection is God's divine stamp of approval. That this is my son. That he is the authoritative one. And that we ought to listen to him. Jesus is the risen one. Not Buddha. Not Muhammad. Not the founder of Mormons, Joseph Smith. Not the latest person on TV or writing articles uh, on News, uh, Newsweek magazine when it comes to be Easter time and professors come out with their theories about what Jesus said or didn't say. Uh, it is Jesus Christ who is the risen one. And so he, is, he has the authority. He is the offspring of David, which, of course, alludes to the Messiah, God promised that through the offspring of David, there would be an eternal kingdom. The Messiah would be sent and um, he would be God's king and the savior of Israel and the savior of the world. And so he is the authority. He's God's king and he's the risen one. And that's the starting point. When we wrestle with any truth, any doctrine or practice, we have to ask ourselves, how does this Measure up against Jesus, his teaching, his work, his spirit, his character that we see in the Gospels. And we have to settle this question of authority. When I was starting graduate school, I had to settle this question of authority. At some point, I had to ask myself, what am I going to base my beliefs on? Because there are all sorts of competing theories that you encounter when you study theology. And I remember one teaching, and I'm a little sheepish to even mention this. I remember one teaching in particular that I was attracted to. I, I didn't buy it, but I was taking it for a test run. I was beginning to think about, about it quite seriously. And it was universalism. I was attr attracted to it. I, again, I didn't buy into it, but I was, um, I, I thought, you know, this is a nice idea that in the end, all people are going to be saved no matter what they believe. Now, we have somebody in, in our church who's writing a theological critique against universalism. <laughs> Thank God for Mike McClyman and the work that he does. But, uh, but I, was, I was honestly sort of attracted to it. And I remember having a conversation with somebody in my family who wasn't a scholar, but she simply said, what does that do to the cross of Jesus? If anybody can be saved in the end, why did Jesus die on the cross? Aren't you undermining the precious work of Christ with this teaching? And of course, she was right. And that gave me pause. And of course, I had thought about that. But just the conviction in which she said it gave me pause. And uh, through that and through a series of other wrestlings intellectually, I had to come to the conviction that Jesus Christ was going to be my authority in all matters of doctrine 
and practice. And I have to measure everything against him. And I hope you've come to that place as well. So we have Jesus Christ, who is the criteria, the standard. And then, of course, the word of God. And the two are related. We know about Jesus, his life and his teaching and his character through the scriptures. But Paul here expresses great confidence throughout, actually, the whole letter of 2 Timothy. He expresses great confidence in the word of God, and he admonishes Timothy to stay faithful to the word of God. In verse 9, Paul says, he has this nice wordplay where he says, you know, I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. I'm bound, but God's word isn't bound, and that's why Paul has confidence. Even though the, the false teaching is making inroads into the church, he knows that as long as God's word is being preached by Timothy and by others, the gospel is going forward, then the light of truth is going to be able to counteract the darkness of false teaching. And so he says, I'm bound, it's true, but God's word is going forth. And then he, he says to Timothy in verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling, listen to this, the word of truth. Timothy, base your ministry on the word of truth. Work hard at getting the truth right. Um, I heard about a pastor who, I don't know if this is true or not, but I like the imagery. He would put on work boots as he went into his study, as he sat down at his desk to study for his sermon, just to remind himself that he was going to work, just to remind himself that it was hard work, but he was given this charge, as all pastors are, to rightly divide the word of truth. Of course, the early Christians did not have the full New Testament that we have today. When this is being written, they didn't have all the books of the New Testament. They didn't have the nice leather-bound Bible. They had, though, the Word of God. They had the Old Testament, which they revered as the Word of God. The Old Testament, which they saw pointing to Jesus Christ. They had the words of Christ. The words of Christ were already in circulation at this time. Some of them were already being written down. Perhaps the Gospel of Mark had already been written. And, of course, they had the apostolic teaching about Jesus, the word of God coming through the apostles, the firsthand witnesses of Jesus, the witnesses to the risen life of Jesus Christ, those who were appointed by Christ himself to carry on his teaching. So Paul is one of those witnesses. And throughout this letter, he's charging Timothy to maintain the teaching that he's given him. It is the apostolic tradition. And, and so Paul will say, and we saw this, this last week, he says to Timothy, follow, this is uh, chapter 1, verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Jesus Christ. There's a pattern here. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a measure. There's an outline. There's a sketch of truth about Jesus Christ, Timothy, that I've passed on to you. And you have to maintain that. You have to follow that. The apostolic truth of Jesus. And then later on, he says in, in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
And then verse 2 says, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this is how the truth of Jesus spread before the canon was complete in the fourth century or so when it was finally defined, although it had been used, scriptures had been used in use for centuries, that the apostolic truth of Jesus was passed on from the apostles to the pastors and then passed on to other leaders. This is, this is the genuine, the most important part of apostolic succession is the apostolic truth of Jesus Christ. And that is enshrined in, of course, the New Testament, in the scriptures. And so this is what we measure truth against. We, we have to measure it against Christ and, and the word of God. And we hang on to that, and that is our foundation. You know, we live in an uh, information age, in the digital age. We are awash in information and data and opinion, aren't we? I mean, it's just a constant, steady stream. Um, I garnered some statistics about the information age. For example, if Wikipedia was a book, it would contain 2.5 million pages. If Facebook was a nation, it would be the third largest nation in the world. has a billion users. Uh, information uh, doubles, it's estimated, every four years. And sharing on social media doubles every two years. So again, we are in this flow of information constantly coming at us. More and more of it. But who can give us the truth about the things that really ultimately matter? The truth about God. The truth about how we can be right with God. The truth about what it means to be a human being and to be made in the image of God. What is the goal and purpose of life? And what is the hope of life beyond this life? That can only be found in Jesus Christ, the risen one, the Messiah, and in the word of God. God has graciously given us his word to give us the truth about these things. And so we take our stand on this foundation. So that's the authority, Jesus and the scriptures. Now I want to talk just a little bit about attitude. What should our attitude be as Christians who seek to be faithful to the truth and guard against false teaching? You know, we can kind of look at what's going on in the culture around us and we can become dour and hopeless and pessimistic. But that wasn't Paul the Apostle's attitude. Interestingly enough, he had hope. And he endured to the very end in hope. And it's interesting to think about all that Paul was going through here at the end of his life. And yet he still is optimistic about the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know already that he's in chains. And yet he's celebrating that the word of God is not in chains. We also learn from the first chapter of Timothy that many people deserted Paul. Paul gave his life for the gospel. Paul founded churches, but he had people who heard him who turned away. In verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are 
Phagellius and Hermogenes. They turned away. People deserted him. Um, there's a scholar named F.F. F. Bruce who was one of the great scholars of the New Testament and of the life of the Apostle Paul. And in his book on the Apostle Paul, he said at this point in the life of the Apostle, he's been in prison for several years and his enemies took advantage of that. There was a power vacuum and his enemies were waiting in the wings to come in with their false teaching. And this probably represents the apex of this anti-Pauline movement. He's in jail. He can't really do anything personally about it, but he has Timothy and he has others who he's taught and he's confident that the word of God is going to push back on this false teaching, false teaching like uh, Judaizing. These people were coming into the churches that Paul had established and they were saying, okay, it's great Gentiles that you have received Jesus Christ, but now you've got to keep these extra rules and that's one of the perennial false teachings of the church. Legalism rules on top of what Jesus Christ gave to kind of hold people down and to burden people. And I've seen that happen in churches where people come under legalistic teaching and it crushes the life and the freedom and the joy of Christ in them. On the other hand, there were people who, who went to the opposite extreme and said, you know, we're free in Christ. And Paul had to deal with these people who said, we're free in Christ and therefore we can live however we want. There's no law that applies to us. The libertines, we can do whatever we want. And Paul had to push against that. So this was happening. But yet Paul remains optimistic because he knows God is faithful to his people. God will be faithful to preserve the church. And he quotes this. It's most likely a quote when he says in verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. So this is why we know probably he's quoting something here. Maybe a prayer. Maybe a creed, maybe a hymn of the early church. But he says, this saying is trustworthy. If we've died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. So he, he, he recognizes he's confronting death. He has to endure suffering, but he says there's hope on the other side. If we deny him, it, he will also deny us. If we, if we renounce him, if we apostatize, if we turn publicly against Christ and apostatize and renounce him. But here's the good news. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Even if we are not faithful, he remains faithful to the cause. He remains faithful to his people. He will have a people who will glorify his name. He will have a people who advance the gospel. He will have a church, and he, the sovereign Lord, is going to be faithful to his church through the end, to the very end, because he can't deny himself. He can't go back on his promises, and he promises to be with his people. And so when we're faithless to him, he will discipline. He will call us back to repentance, but he will continue to deal with his people, and he'll be faithful to his people because he can't deny himself. So that's the attitude that Paul has. Hope and endurance to the very end. Now there's one other attitude issue that I want to talk about that Paul brings up here at the end. And that is to not have a quarrelsome spirit. He says to Timothy, 
I charge, uh, he says, remind them of these things and charge them not before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Later on, he will say in this chapter, the Lord's servant, this is verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may perhaps grant them repentance and leading to a knowledge of the truth. So even though we're very concerned about right teaching, right theology, right doctrine, guarding against false teaching, we go about it with gentleness and, and with a spirit that's not argumentative or quarrelsome. This is something that, especially those of us who are concerned with doctrine and theology, have to guard against. Yes, we need to stand for the truth, but we don't attack people and we don't want to be argumentative. We don't want to argue for argument's sake. My mom used to tell me, Ben, you would argue with the Lord himself if he came down here. And maybe that was a, a sign that I, would have, I, that I was going to study theology because theologians have a reputation for being argumentative. Uh, I remember one time meeting somebody in a hospital a waiting room. I don't remember what the situation was, but I started this conversation, struck up a conversation with a lady, and she was sharing about her background, and I was sharing about my background, and I told her that I studied theology, and she got this look on her face. Oh, you people like to argue, she said. Just kind of stepped away. Well, I mean, there's, there's a time to argue. There's a time to debate. There's a time to make distinctions, no doubt about it, especially on primary issues. You know, the, the old saying, uh, I think it's, it's from the 17th century, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things charity. And that's how we ought to conduct ourselves. And essential things, we are unified. Non-essential things, secondary issues, things that are not related to salvation, then we can, we can debate, but we do it in a spirit of gentleness. And I think this is so important as a church today, where we're at culturally. I mean, a lot of people feel like we're kind of up against the wall. And there's a lot going against Churches that want to maintain faithfulness to the scriptures and to Jesus Christ. But we can't give in to a nasty sort of pessimistic spirit. We have to be happy warriors for the truth of Jesus Christ. We have to be winsome warriors for Jesus Christ. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us the spirit of Christ. To be gentle and kind, firm, yes, but loving. Because what's at stake is as Paul mentions here, the salvation of souls. And we don't want to turn people off because our hackles are up. But we want to love them into the truth of Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, as, as we come to a, a, a conclusion here, let's just take a moment to ask ourselves, are we living under the authority of Christ and his word? The more we know Christ, the more we know his word, the better foundation we will have to discern truth from error. And this really matters because truth is life and Jesus' words are life. And we need to continually expose ourselves to his word of truth. And we need to ask him for this spirit of gentleness as we go about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will uh, do that work in our life and in our church community. 
that we would be, as we, as we sing about earlier, that your word would be deeply um, planted in us, that we would be rooted and grounded in your word. And that we would come to full maturity in Christ by your grace. Help us to be witnesses to the truth, but help us to be gentle and respectful of people. Thank you, God, for this church that has maintained faithfulness to you at, at, at great cost and sacrifice. We thank you for that heritage, and we pray that we can continue it on in this day. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.